Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. It's a lovely sunny day and in fact it's my favourite time of year, this period from October to December when the humidity goes a little bit out of the air and it's a great time to be walking around Hong Kong. I'm up in mid-levels and I'm just round the corner in fact from Elgin Street or Ilan Gangai which begins below Hollywood Road and ends up at Kane Road. So Elgin Street is divided into two sections by the junction with Peel Street and Staunton Street. And apparently Elgin Street in the past was also called Mud Street for fairly obvious reasons, presumably before it was tarmacked over. It used to get really muddy when it rained, so back in the 19th century. So why am I in Elgin Street? Well, you may have heard on the news this week about the Elgin Marbles, which are also known as the Parthenon Marbles. So they're a collection of classical Greek marble sculptures that are original parts of the Parthenon and were created in the 5th century BC. What's that got to do with Elgin Street? Well, the father of the man who Elgin Street is named after was called Thomas Bruce. And in the years 1801 to 1812, agents of Thomas Bruce, who was the British 7th Earl of Elgin, took away about half of these sculptures at the Parthenon in Greece and some others around the country and had them transported by sea to England and uh, you would now be able to see them in the British Museum. But there are a few people who think that, you know, why should Britain have those at the British Museum? Surely they should be back in Greece. So there's a committee that's uh, just been opened to investigate this issue and see whether they should be kept at the British Museum or otherwise sent back to Greece and uh, the, with a view to the British government then asking Greece if they could have a few more Greek treasures on loan instead. So this week with the name Elgin in my head because I'd read this piece of news I thought I'd like to check out why Elgin Street is called Elgin Street so I've been wandering around this area this morning and admittedly it's it's quite early morning so uh, it's ahead of the shops opening but I was a bit disappointed with Elgin Street I felt that it doesn't have that vibrancy of the the cafes and restaurants I used to know before the Covid period um, so I've got a feeling that some of those have been shut down and there probably is some new construction coming in so the Elgin of Elgin Street is in fact as I said the son of the seventh Earl so he's the eighth Earl of Elgin and uh, he represented the British government in India and Jamaica and then ended up in China at the time of the Second Opium War, where China was being forced to open up to foreign trading powers, including Britain and Japan. So I've been looking up that this week. He was called James Bruce. And uh, as the eighth Earl of Elgin, he now lends his name to Elgin Street. He served as governor of Jamaica, governor general of the province of Canada, and Viceroy of India. And in 1857, he was appointed High Commissioner and Plenipotentiary in China and this region to open up China to Western trade. In 1860, during the Second Opium War in China, he ordered the destruction of the old Summer Palace in Beijing. Now, the background to this was that Lord Elgin, this, this 8th Earl of Elgin had travelled to China, obviously by sea, and when he arrived on the way, they effectively stopped off in Sri Lanka, but in fact were shipwrecked in Gaul, in Sri Lanka. And on board, he'd got to know this Times journalist, the, the British Times journalist, who did quite a famous article about this shipwreck. And then they continued travelling on to Beijing. 
And the Times journalist is one of a group of people who are captured and tortured to death. And it's as a result of his death that Lord Elgin orders the torching or the burning down of this old summer palace, which was such a huge loss in terms of cultural heritage, artworks, antiques, architecture, can you imagine? And then after that, Lord Elgin forces the Qing dynasty to sign the Convention of Peking, which adds the Kowloon Peninsula to Hong Kong Island in terms of British territory here at that time. So I've been walking along Elgin Street today, so near Peel Street and Staunton Street, with Hollywood Road below, and the shops, as I say, are just starting to open up. And in fact, the uh, escalator, which itself is nearly 30 years old, so a little bit of more modern Hong Kong heritage, has in fact just turned around. So all the commuters have headed downtown and uh, it's been automated now to turn back upwards for the rest of the day for those wanting to come uphill. So I'm going to head off for a, a coffee and a piece of toast and then I'm going to go down to Pier 8 at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. The Hong Kong Maritime Museum on Pier 8 in Central has been undergoing a revamp and with its reopening came the exhibition Hong Kong's Maritime Miracle, the story of our city since 1945. I joined Tim Huxley, the chairman of Mandarin Shipping, for a look around. I'm Tim Huxley. I've lived in Hong Kong for 33 years, always employed in the shipping industry here. Originally, I came from the UK as a shipbroker, and subsequently, I worked as the CEO of Wong Shipping, one of the largest ship owners in Hong Kong, uh, who are 70 years old. And then I set up my own shipping company, Mandarin Shipping Limited, running a small fleet of container ships in Hong Kong. So here we are wandering around Maritime Miracle. And of course, I mean, as you've pointed out to me before, Tim, even when we get up, by the time we've had breakfast, how many uh, container ships do you think we've used in terms of the uh, items coming into Hong Kong? We've probably used at least half a dozen ships by the time you sit down for breakfast. I mean, and it's not just container ships. I mean, if you look at uh, the electricity you use, uh, and turn the lights on, hot water, uh, that is generated by coal that was brought in by ship. Uh, then, of course, you've got what you're eating for breakfast, uh, the clothes you're wearing, the fuel you use to get to work or to school. So every aspect of your life, there will be a ship involved at some point of it. Uh, so it's absolutely a vital part of our lives. 90% of everything goes by sea. So without shipping, the world stops. When I come across on my ferry, I'm going across the East Lama Strait and uh, the container ships are coming with incredible regularity. It's like having our own Panama Canal. Well, that's the wonderful thing about <laughs> Hong Kong. You really are living at the heart of a maritime centre and it affects all our lives we see it all the time the harbour it's the reason hong kong exists in the first place is the best deep water anchorage on the south china coast and that was really around what hong kong has been built we were in the run-up to the second world war this was a major shipbuilding and ship repair center it's always been a great trading port and you know, shipping has very much been the source of so much of hong kong's wealth uh, I mean, if you look at it back in 1949, when you had the migration from Shanghai and from the rest of China, uh, a lot of people came down here and were immediately engaged in the shipping business, uh, whether that be working in the dockyards or in the go-downs and the wharfs, unloading and loading ships, or indeed the merchants who came down from Shanghai and set up some of the great shipping companies that went on to be world leaders. Uh, people like Sir Y.K. Powell, CY Tung, uh, the Pows, the Coos, the Chows, 
all of these great shipping families that have really been a bedrock of Hong Kong and really helped make Hong Kong the great place that it is today. Wandering around Maritime Miracle, you'll hear in the background uh, some of the videos that you can also see to describe these different stages of history. There's also some that seem to be showing us, you know, couples leaving, you know, there'll be somebody heading off to, I think, join the Merchant Navy. There seem to be some quite romantic videos going around. Oh, it's a, <laughs> and, and this is the wonderful thing about this exhibition. It really brings home all aspects. The of family aspects. The family up, aspects. Yeah. It's not just about big business, etc. And, and this was the sea and the career at sea, going at sea. It was a massive separation for families, but it was a great way to build a career. And, you know, a lot of people, they went to sea. The Hong Kong seafarers, they were world famous, very well respected, uh, and, uh, and they were really important in bringing a lot of uh, overseas experience and wisdom, seafarers. They'd been around the world and they came back and maybe that's what prompted some of them then to relocate overseas but really seafaring and the shipping industry it's been an integral part of hong kong life uh, really for as long as hong kong's been in existence during my childhood in the 70s and 80s i definitely grew up in an era where many of the items were made in hong kong so all of those items would have been shipped to britain i presume from here Oh, absolutely. I mean, in many ways, you know, I think any child growing up in the 60s and 70s in the West, uh, their bedroom would have had something with made in Hong Kong stamped on it. And Hong Kong's uh, light industry, we were very famous here for making, you know, I mean, for instance, most of the world's thermos flasks were made in Hong Kong. But also toys, that was really what Hong Kong was famous for making. And we... Uh, in Hong Kong, there were so many places that took over from Japan as really the global center for toy manufacturing. There were injection molding machines in so many places. But really, what helped make the Hong Kong toy industry, the globally dominant industry it became, was the shipping container and the ability for these exports to be sent overseas. I mean, most of the toys that were imported into the United States were made in Hong Kong. And really, when the container revolution started in the late 60s, and Hong Kong's first container terminal opened in 1972, the ability to bring goods, plastics, I mean, and these were quite fragile. The fact that you could take them in containers, it meant that the damage to the goods was much less. It was efficient, it was safe, uh, and that was actually allowing these goods to be exported overseas to an extent that you'd never been able to do that before. So that really helped put Hong Kong manufacturing on the map. And that was very much driven by the development of Hong Kong port. I mean, people have often said uh, Santa Claus lived in Kwai Chung. Uh, and, uh, and, and that really was the, the focal point for the export industry from Hong Kong. And there's so many things, I mean, things like... Uh, we, we've got a, an example here of various things that were made in Hong Kong and things like hair pieces, uh, tea caddies, toys, torches, lanterns, I mean, plastic flowers, of course. That was a particularly famous one that, uh, where, where Hong Kong really did lead the world. Yeah, plastic flowers are an interesting one. I mean, did you ever have any in your living room? Uh, I don't think we ever had any plastic flowers in the living room. I mean, my father was um, a Church of England vicar, and I think we did actually have a few plastic flowers in the church. Uh, they, they sort of lasted a bit longer. <laughs> they don't wilt as fast. No. But 
Yes, so in front of us, agree, there's, um, there's a super collection of what Hong Kong has made over the decades. So all of these little toys, and that's what I remember, little plastic toys that you could put in a doll's house, sometimes came in a cracker, but torches or flashlights, uh, as they're called on the box here. So they've really found some interesting and old packaging, which is just lovely, and with mm. the colour color schemes that went with that. So little lamps, cameras, and uh, also, as you say, these tea caddies and pyjamas. And all of this was, uh, so much of it was designed in Hong Kong and the packaging and everything. So there were so many different facets of Hong Kong that were brought together in this. And, uh, and this was the really big export industry of Hong Kong. And uh, it really did help put Hong Kong on the map. But it's interesting what you said about, you know, the advent of containerization in the 60s and the fact that what? So everything like this was just being thrown one on top of another in bulk. Well, it was um, slip in bulk as it, it was yeah. it was loaded into boxes that were then piled on top of each other. And the problem with before you had containerization was you had a lot of damage to cargo. Uh, there was a lot of pilferage as well. A lot of cargo was stolen. Uh, it was almost sort of a sort of perk of the job that you could help yourself to some of the cargo. So containerization really did make it made transport much more secure, much more efficient, much quicker. I mean, when uh, the first container ship came to Hong Kong in 1972, it uh, unloaded 200 containers. It was en route from Europe to Japan, and its first call in Hong Kong. This is a ship called the Tokyo Bay, and it unloaded 200 containers and loaded another 200, and it did that in 12 hours. And that's a fraction of the time it would have taken to unload those if they were in, in, on individual pallets or in individual boxes. So it really did speed up the whole movement of goods. And really, without the container, uh, globalization wouldn't have happened. That has really been a pivotal development in making world trade so much more efficient and, and you see this now you just go out on a ferry or look in the harbor or you go out to the airport and you see the container terminals there it is the most phenomenal industry in its own right everything and it's amazing to think that this is all down to really just a simple metal box that's 20 feet by 8 feet by 8 foot 6 uh, and that has really revolutionized transport Yes, and also, I mean, from the in the past 50 years, of course, all the automation that would have been going on, you know, in terms of, you know, this turnaround, as you say, in 12 hours is quite extraordinary. Absolutely. I mean, you know, goods can come out of the factory in southern China and be steaming across the Pacific, really, almost in a matter of hours. Uh, so it really has sort of smoothed the whole supply chain right down. And it, it was important as well, the container terminal in Hong Kong. When in the 80s, a lot of the manufacturing that was going on in Hong Kong moved over the border, the container terminal was again something that really facilitated uh, the development of southern China. So in many ways, the container terminal was the forerunner of the Greater Bay Area of bringing together uh, all of these towns, cities in southern China into being this huge manufacturing base that, uh, that is now the sort of the world's factory. So this was, we've just been having a look at some of the toys. Um, so that goes right back to, what, the 1970s, what we're looking at here? Yeah, sort of 60s, 70s. You know, some of, the, some of these things. A lot of this is sort of small plastic goods that were manufactured in Hong Kong. Uh, and, and also, of course, the textiles. Textiles were a huge part of Hong Kong industry. Uh, a lot of clothing made here. And, of course, that's all moved. I mean, as uh, economies develop, just like you had 
I mean, the UK used to be the world's biggest shipbuilding industry. But yeah, as economies develop, those industries move to more developing countries, just like China is now the world's biggest shipbuilding nation. These, these industries, they relocated. But again, because of the container and because of the ease of how you can move things now, uh, that's made the whole process so much more efficient. And as a result, has brought the cost down for the consumer. Tim Huxley, the chairman of Mandarin Shipping, talking from the Hong Kong Maritime Museum about the exhibition Hong Kong's Maritime Miracle, the story of our city since 1945, which is on show at the museum until the end of this month. This week marked the 20th anniversary of a terrorist attack in Bali at two bars, which killed 202 people, including 11 rugby players from the Vandals team from Hong Kong. There were a number of rugby clubs and other sports clubs from around Asia in Bali for a tournament at the time. Every year in Hong Kong, those rugby players are remembered at a memorial at the Hong Kong Football Club. Also, those that survived the bombing felt that they'd been given a second chance, and some of them banded together here in Hong Kong and have subsequently raised millions of dollars to finance communities less fortunate than themselves. I had a chat with Anson Bailey, who was walking towards one of the nightclubs on Kuta in Bali when a car bomb went off on October the 12th, 2002. Anson is the honorary president of the Hong Kong Pot-Bellied Pigs Rugby Club. We were actually walking to the Sari Club as it blew up. You know, we were probably a, literally a, a minute away from being at the entrance of the Sari Club on that fateful night in October 2002. The blast knocked us off our feet. That's how powerful it was, the sound wave. And I just remember seeing this massive glow, having been knocked off our feet and looking up to the sky and seeing what can only be described as this massive orange mushroom cloud that had appeared. And I think the initial reaction was that I think all of us, we were, we were in a state of shock. And initially, all we could see is at the end of the street, people running up the street, running towards us. And your instinct immediately kicks in. And so we ran away to begin with. And then I think running down that street, it suddenly dawned on us that something horrific had happened. And so we turned around and went back to help. But I have to say that, you know, we just feel that we were so lucky. We got a, you know, a number of us got a second chance. And yeah, I, I, we're very, very thankful for that. Which rugby players were in, from Hong Kong, were in Bali? So it was the, the teams, the Vandals and, and yours, the, the Pot-Bellied Pigs? Pot-Bellied Pigs. Um, there were actually, a, you know, there were a number of different teams that were in Bali at the time. In fact, across the whole region. But yes, the Hong Kong Football Club was there and, fought, you know, was out there. There were, you know, a number of, of boys and girls that, of course, were part of the, the, the Hong Kong Pop Valley Pigs Rugby Club. There were members of, of other teams that were coming along. There were, you know, a number of the Valley Boys. There were also teams from around the region, the Singapore Cricket Club. We knew them very well. They were also in Bali at the time. And in fact, the Singapore Cricket Club boys were in Paddy's Bar where the initial explosion happened with the suicide vest going off. And then, of course, everybody ran onto the streets where the, the second massive 
car bomb explosion killed 202 people and injured hundreds more people. But there were clubs from Taipei, the Taipei baboons. There were clubs from, you know, all around the region that we played with. You know, we, there were regular competitions, rugby competitions uh, we played with. And, of course, there was the Indonesian Sports Club or the International Sports Club of Indonesia, I should say, ISKI, uh, based in Jakarta. They lost players. So there were, of course, the Australian rugby teams uh, that equally lost a lot of players. And I think uh, the Aussies, I think, lost around about 88 Mm. people in that fateful night. Now, you helped to save a friend. Yes. Andy Douglas was a good friend. He'd been in Hong Kong. He'd played for Hong Kong Police. He'd also played for a number of different clubs. At the time, he was at the Singapore Cricket Club. And we helped to pull him from the wreckage of Paddy's Bar. And we then took care of him on that fateful night. And, uh, yeah, I'll always remember seeing Andy. It was just, yeah, it was quite, it's quite amazing. You know, he, he was, uh, he's a big guy, six, five, and, and he was just smoking from head to toe. He was blackened. His clothes were charred. Uh, his skin was peeling. And he was badly injured. But we got him out, and thankfully he survived, and we still keep in regular contact. And as I said, we got a second chance, and we're so, so thankful for that. What are your feelings 20 years on? I think it gives you a fresh perspective on life, Anne-Marie. I think it, you, know, you realise how fragile life is. And, you know, I think you, for me personally, you think very differently about death and, and life. I think the important thing right now is you then realize that perhaps you need to do something different with your life. And, you know, good deeds are very important. And, of course, we decided that, and I think it inspired us to then set up our Fat Boy 10s charity tournament, where for the last 18 years we've been supporting street kids and, and supporting medical missions helping those less fortunate than ourselves. So I I definitely think it it does change your perspective. Makes you think a little bit more about family, and perhaps for all of us, we need to hug our families a little bit tighter, a little bit closer. I actually gave my 17-year-old son a big hug this morning, and he kind of looked at me quizzically and (laughs) like, you know, Dad, what's going on? And... uh, You know, perhaps we need to tell our loved ones just how much we love them. So, yeah, I I think it did change all of us on that fateful night. The Hong Kong rugby community is such a special group of people. After the Bali bombing, everyone, and I do mean everyone, came together to give a helping hand. And, you know, even as we continue with the likes of the Fat Boy 10s in its 18th year now, But, you know, we've been able to raise millions of dollars. And and again, a massive thank you to all of our rugby friends, boys and girls um, here who have always given generously. There's also a memorial, isn't there? Is that in the Hong Kong Football Club? A sort of a memorial Um, plaque? There is a memorial plaque at the Hong Kong Football Club, you're right. We also, every year, play a Bali memorial game as well at the Hong Kong Football Club. We usually do that on the week of the Hong Kong Sevens. And, of course, because of the timing, we usually do it in early April. 
we usually do it on the Friday of the Hong Kong Rugby Sevens. So that's that's something that we've played ever since the Bali bombing. Anson Bailey there. To finish off today's programme, I'm going back to a recording probably from the late 1990s when I used to live in a hacker house in the northern New Territories in a village called Gaolunghang near Dai Wu. So at that time, my Hong Kong heritage programmes often had a bit of a countryside feel and I would often go to Kadori Farm and Botanic Garden to find out about mammals and reptiles. In this programme segment, I talked to Dr Michael Lau, who, at the time, worked for Kadori Farm and was the programme coordinator of the China programme. And our subject that week was Hong Kong snakes. In terms of studying snakes as opposed to any other kind of creature, what appeals to you about the snake in terms of its design, in terms of um, its, its lifestyle and the way it moves, all of these kind of elements? I think they're, they're fascinating because they have a very unusual body build. They haven't got any, any limbs, but still they are they're perfectly well adapted to, to live in present-day world with a lot of predators around. And a lot of them are very pretty. They have, they're very colourful, they have very rich patterns, some of which are even beyond our imaginations. Let's focus in on a couple of types of snake. Yes, well, let's start with the biggest one we have in Hong Kong. Uh, that's the Burmese python. It grows up to about six meters uh, in length, and um, they are very heavily body built. They've got lots of muscles in the body. That's because uh, they feed on fairly large prey. They can uh, tackle uh, small deers, or even many, many years ago, one was found to have swallowed uh, a small calf. And they are non-venomous, so the way they subdue the prey is by um, calling around the prey and using the muscles to slowly stop the prey from uh, breathing. And unusual things about python is that among the snakes, they are the few that um, actually look after the eggs. In Burmese python, uh, once the eggs are laid, the mother will call around the eggs. And well, we know snakes are uh, what we call cold-blooded animals. That is uh, normally, uh, they cannot generate body heat the temperature are very close are very close to the environmental temperature. But in pythons, when they are incubating the eggs, the mother can actually raise the body temperature a few degrees above uh, the environment so as to incubate the eggs. So that's very, very unusual. So what happens then? Does she actually have her last meal, wrap herself around the eggs, and that's the last time she moves until they're hatched? Uh, normally, she'll fast when, when she's incubating the eggs. But snakes have a very, very slow metabolic rate, unlike mammals, because mammals like us, we have to maintain our high body temperature. So we burnt up a lot of energy. Whereas snakes, uh, they don't need to do that. So uh, they don't need to eat as often as, as we do. And they also can store up a lot of um, uh, reserve. In the case of the python, they'll fast for maybe six weeks or so to incubate the eggs. And once the eggs are hatched, then the mother will resume the normal activity. As you say, it can grow up to six metres. Why is it called a Burmese python? This particular species actually has a wide range in Asia. There are several different species or different populations. And the one we have in Hong Kong occurs in South China, Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, all the way into Burma. And so the common name, we just call it the Burmese python. And where can you find it in Hong Kong? 
It's actually quite widespread、um, because it's such a large lake. They have、uh, large territories. They cover a lot of ground.、Uh, it has been recorded in New Territories, Hong Kong Island, Lantau Island, and even some smaller islands. Dr. Michael Lau there, who's contributed greatly to the research and knowledge here in Hong Kong on snakes and other aspects of our flora and fauna. My thanks also to Tim Huxley and Anson Bailey. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.